I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying safe and well. The new Biden administration means a whole new U.S. climate policy agenda. We've already seen some of this, starting with rejoining the Paris Agreement. But I reached out to Alice Hill to talk more about what to expect. With policy experience that includes working on climate change in the Obama White House and the National Security Council, she's a voice well worth listening to. Now, when I first interviewed Alice way back in September 2019, it was frankly speaking, a sobering perspective on how much of the climate work accomplished under the Obama administration could be all too easily undone by the Trump administration. In that episode, Alice didn't pull any punches in her critique on the last four years. This time around, we discuss how the White House will likely have to govern on climate through regulation and executive orders alone what opportunities exist to reframe climate change as a national security issue, and why we need to rethink how climate risk is treated in insurance markets. Also, I do want to mention, when I last interviewed Alice, her book Building a Resilient Tomorrow hadn't yet been published. Now, we're always grateful to the guests on the show, and one of the ways we support authors is to give away a number of copies of their most recently published book. So we're giving away three copies of Alice's book to the best comments to this episode on social media. Just be sure to tag us and the podcast. Alice Hill is the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her work at CFR focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Alice served as Special Assistant to President Barack Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks, including climate change and biological threats. In 2020, Yale University awarded her the Public Voices Fellowship on the Climate Crisis. Her co-authored book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, was published in 2019, and her next book, the Fight for Climate After COVID-19 is coming out this spring. Welcome back to the podcast, Alice Hill. It's great to have you again. Oh, thank you. Delighted to join you. Uh, it's great timing. And uh, I've got to tell you, I've got so many questions for you. So let's jump right in. How are you thinking about the Biden administration's climate strategy? And I am thinking in terms of priorities and timing. I ask that specifically because Republicans have essentially already rejected much of Biden's initial climate change push, including rejoining the Paris Agreement. So does it make sense for Biden to go big and ambitious the next two years through executive orders and regulations, given the potential that you've got uh, electoral risk in the September 2022 midterm elections? The short answer is yes. Uh, look, we have a very short fuse on the time during which we must take action. It's now. Essentially, we need to cut our emissions dramatically by 2030. A report just came out recently saying it we needed to cut them by 80%. So we need to act. Congress, the Republican side of the Congress, has not supported action on climate the Biden administration is left with having to work through the executive branch to get as much done as possible. 
I think they can learn from what happened under President Obama, where most of the work occurred through at least executive action, these executive orders in the second term of President Obama. But if President Biden moves quickly, which he has, on establishing executive orders and then regulating based on those orders, he can embed his work so that it is much more lasting than what occurred under President Obama in his second term. Much of what the Biden administration is currently doing is, like you said, simply restoring Obama-era regulation, which is a powerful start. But without that, I guess, statutory permanence of law, doesn't this weaken the U.S.'s international climate security message, particularly going into COP26? Well, it certainly weakens the United States' position as a leader on climate. It's very obvious that if there's a change in administration, if we get another climate denier who's seated in the Oval Office in the White House, it spells trouble for climate action that President Biden is taking now. It doesn't mean everything gets killed, but much of it is highly vulnerable. And as you point out, it is not enshrined in legislation, so it's easier to undo. With that said, the urgency of the challenge demands, in my opinion, that the administration move forward in the hopes that there are elements within the Republican Party, particularly younger voters, who will embrace this approach of trying to make sure that we avoid the very worst of the heating that's ahead and the impacts that come with that heating, droughts, wildfires, bigger floods. So it's really, in my opinion, pretty much the only approach left to him, given the deep polarization that is very evident in the United States right now. It sounds like you're not optimistic about the potential for a national carbon tax or a national carbon market being put in place anytime soon. I don't believe it will be. I think that during the Obama administration, during the first term, there was attempts to do that, not successful. And many believe that time was lost in that effort, which was not ultimately rewarded. So now, given the even deeper divide in the country and the sense that House and Senate could be controlled by Democrats for only two years, it's best to move forward on other issues and make as much headway as possible without going down that same path that was unsuccessful for President Obama. Hmm. So turning back to the topic of climate security, the Biden administration recently named John Kerry as special presidential envoy for climate, um, which is a cabinet level position, which also means that he now has a formal seat on the National Security Council. Given your own exposure on the National Security Council, what's the significance of this? What does it mean in terms of embedding climate risk in the context of overall national security interests? The most important aspect of this is it means that when the National Security Council convenes, there's someone in the room who will raise the issue of what does this decision that we're taking here mean in the face of a rapidly changing climate. And that has not occurred historically, in my opinion. For a variety of reasons, climate change has not sufficiently entered into the discussions about national security. 
So President Biden saying, I'm creating this brand new position as special envoy, and plus I'm going to make this person have a seat at the National Security Council meetings, of equal voice to the secretaries who are the members of the National Council, sends a significant message that the United States needs to embed consideration of security risks from climate into all of its decision-making about national security. The, the notion of climate security was incredibly prominent during the Obama years, and then it sort of obviously fell away during the last administration. In what ways do you see the Department of Defense embracing it and potentially reframing it? You know, we always hear this language, and, and I've heard you use it as well, of climate change being a threat multiplier. That would seem to read incredibly well, you know, at the state and local levels. Well, it has a very uh, mixed reception, actually, when you link national security and climate change. And in my experience, some Republicans were hostile to the linking of national security and climate change and were not supportive of President Obama when he did so and announced, for example, to the Coast Guard cadets at their commencement that the issue would define their lives going forward. So it's been a divisive issue, whether there are national security considerations. And when I was in the Obama administration, I did lead the development of an executive order that President Obama signed, which required the scientists within the federal government to provide the best available climate science to our intelligence analysts. Those are the ones uh, studying what's happening around the globe and interpreting it for our policymakers in the hopes that there would be discussions within the National Security Council about what climate change meant uh, for decisions that we were making about particular regions or strategies that we were putting in place. President Trump almost immediately revoked that executive order, but President Biden really on his very first day in office revived it and brought it back to life so that it is now in place which I think was a smart move. Instead of trying to redo that work, I would not say it's a perfect order, but it was good enough to get the job done. And I think that was the calculus of the Biden team. That work was certainly functional and usable. And so we're going to put that in place so that we can move ahead and address other issues and not go back and relitigate what we did in the past. What this will mean is that some of the variation that we saw within the national security community, that would be the intelligence agencies as well as the military, some of the variation in how they treated climate change under President Trump would be removed. And now there is a very clear signal that everyone can recognize that this president, who is, after all, the head of the military, has said, you must pay attention to the threats from climate change as you plan the nation's security. Yeah, I sort of hate to dwell on it, but it is worth reflecting. What have the last four years cost us? When we last spoke in the fall of 2019, I'd asked you to give a grade to the Trump administration in terms of its approach to climate change and resilience. And you'd replied a D minus and F. And, you know, <laughs> fast forward a year and a half later, how much deeper is that? And more importantly, how do we go about fixing it? What's sort of the cost institutionally in terms of research, in terms of personnel that the last four years have, have meant? Well, I think it's safe to say it's an F, B 
because, well, it depends, I suppose, on your view. I think that the need to act on climate is urgent. It's beyond the time where we need to have significant accomplishments and progress in cutting our emissions, as well as preparing for the impacts. President Trump basically undercut almost every effort to accomplish that. There were a few minor steps where progress was made, but it was a evisceration of climate from the federal government. Virtually anyone who had climate in their title did not have a voice during the last administration. You saw scientists and policymakers transferred right at the tail end of the Trump administration from their positions, including the scientist who led the National Climate Assessment, a mandated report from Congress that is supposed to inform the nation about the threats from climate change. The head scientist was shoved aside, as were other policymakers and scientists throughout the federal agencies. That's highly demoralizing, of course, to the career officials that work within the federal government on these issues. But it also means that we lost uh, significant talent and expertise and institutional knowledge when those people were transferred. Some of them along the way during the Trump administration actually left government. I recently saw an estimate that a thousand scientists uh, left government under Trump, a, a high number. And of course, the federal government, when I joined the Obama administration, had some of the best climate scientists in the world. So they were leading work on understanding what was ahead with climate. And then Trump basically put that to an end and really made some rules about how science could be conducted that undermined the integrity of the science. The Biden administration is working diligently to undo that. But of course, that takes energy and time to undo what's been done and get people back in place and start it up again. So it was highly damaging in the end. I wish I could be cheerier for you, but I think that there is a general sense that the Trump administration, for all its chaos and just really no seemingly planned approach, was able to do a lot of damage that will take a while to clean up and recover from. You can rebuild agencies, you know, you can hire scientists again. I mean, what's the area that most worries you? Where's the long-term damage? Uh, in terms of internally for the United States on its own efforts to cut emission and prepare, the federal government isn't the... Um, uh, the decider on these issues. It's in a position of support. Uh, it will regulate in terms of emissions, but in terms of preparing, it's going to be in a supporting role, helping communities understand their risks and helping them make wise choices about land use, how to build, where to build, and how to better withstand a future that does not resemble the past. But we've lost four years. You know, if you look at the state of understanding of risk in the United States, we have no federally generated set of maps for flood, which is our number one natural hazard and will be the hazard that causes the most losses going forward uh, in terms of just sheer damage. We don't have mapping that tells people 
what kind of flooding they can expect in the future. We don't have disclosure laws that give them sound information, even about the past floods they've experienced. On the wildfire side, where we have uh, substantial numbers of people living in areas that are surrounded by forest or grasslands and are highly vulnerable to wildfires in a time with drier and hotter conditions, there's no wildfire mapping that tells them what their future risk is. We have insurance crises brewing uh, in those areas, and yet we have more people moving into areas at fire risk and in some states at flood risk than moving into areas that are safer. That's a big challenge, and we've lost four years of telling people you have to rethink these things, otherwise your house is, or your home or your business is at risk of complete destruction by one of these extreme events. Yeah, I remember discussing this back in September 2019. And in fact, in your book, you point this out in Building a Resilient Tomorrow. You talk about this sort of virtual cycle where state and local governments keep reinsuring effectively high climate risk areas without more stringent restrictions out of fear of I guess, litigation or protecting their tax base. Do you see any change intact from the Biden administration in terms of doing anything about this? You know, I remember speaking in September 2019, and you made the point that this is such a sensitive issue because you're talking about impacting premium and property values that it kind of cuts across both sides of the aisle. Yes. And I think if you were to analyze what the Biden administration has done so far, its efforts have been more modest in this effort of how do you prepare the United States. It did bring back one significant executive order. Again, one I happened to lead, but that executive order was the first national standard. Most of our building code standards are set by state or local governments. But this standard was for flood, and it said... If you want to take federal taxpayer money to build or substantially rebuild in or near a floodplain, you're going to have to elevate that structure so that the water can wash under it. And President Trump, just 10 days before Harvey hit and dumped over four feet of rain on Pancake Flat, Houston. Uh, so there are massive flooding. Revoked that order. So the Biden administration has brought it back. But that is a modest, in comparison to what's ahead, measure. We need a national adaptation plan. We need to figure out ways to provide the kind of risk information that state and local governments, as well as individuals, need. We need to find ways to help greater regional planning. There are modest statements about this in the Biden work, but it's not the kind of overall comprehensive approach that this challenge demands, particularly, and this is, I think, something that many people miss, is that even if we cut our emissions to zero, and of course the most resilient strategy is to cut our emissions, but even if we're successful in cutting those emissions to zero tomorrow, because of the slow way that our past emissions interact with the atmosphere. So we need to focus on this as well. We can't just now say it's all in on mitigation. 
because there'll be lives lost, economic loss, public health threats as a result of this, if we don't get a handle on the impacts that we are suffering now and will continue to suffer for several decades hence. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. was critical in negotiating with China around the Paris Agreement a number of years ago. How do you see the Biden administration engaging with China now, given this sort of interesting paradox that China is both developing cutting-edge renewable technologies and rolling that out domestically, as well as exporting large amounts of coal power generation as part of its Belt and Road Initiative? Well, circumstances have changed uh, in terms of our relationship with China. Uh, It's uh, a a bit tenser now than it was uh, then. Uh, But there is, of course, the need to make sure that China is uh, moving quickly. It has made its important announcement about 2060, but been less transparent about what steps will be taken between now and 2060. That's uh, a worry with all the nations, that it's easy to pledge something uh, for three to four decades out, uh, but without solid plans about how to get there, it's just a pledge. So that will be um, difficult to Uh, navigate for the United States, given it's just coming back and it needs also to have credibility about how it will achieve uh, President Biden's promise for 2050 and his promise for clean energy by 2035. I think this is where we're lucky to have John Kerry in place because he is very experienced in all of this and He's a consummate diplomat, and I think he will work hard to find the proper connection to work with China on these issues. You're giving an upcoming lecture at Stanford titled Lessons from the Pandemic on How to Prepare for Climate Change. Um, What are some of those lessons? How has the pandemic shaped your thinking around resilience? What surprised you about resilience at the local level versus the federal level? It revealed to me that the human brain has a great deal of trouble in envisioning catastrophic risk. Experts had written about pandemics saying it's a question of when, not if. I even, on the anniversary, the 99th anniversary of the 1918 pandemic, I wrote a piece about uh, the need to prepare and remain prepared for pandemics. But if we haven't experienced a risk ourselves or don't have a loved one who has or a close friend, we tend to discount those risks. And so um, when this materialized, I think it was um, surprising to all, including the experts, because we simply hadn't been able to imagine all of the ramifications But it certainly has given everyone on the globe an opportunity to experience what it means to have something that undermines the very essence of your life. And how do you react to that? What steps can you take uh, to better protect yourselves in the future? We never imagined, at least in the United States, I think as emergency managers, that we would experience an event where there was a crisis in 50 states plus six territories. So we had the pandemic, 
but we also just had a terrible year with natural disasters. 10 million acres burned in the western United States. 30 named storms in the Atlantic, so many that they had to switch from the Latin alphabet to the Greek alphabet. 129 degrees, probably the highest temperature ever recorded in Death Valley, very aptly named California. We saw flooding. We saw disaster after disaster. 22 bill over 22 separate events that cost over a billion dollars each. Munich Re, the reinsurer, estimated that globally 210 billion dollars in losses from climate worsened natural natural hazards. Um, 95 billion of that was in the U.S. So we have the pandemic plus. This, these other tragedies going forward. That teaches us we need to have greater redundancy so that we're better prepared going uh, for in the future, that we will have simultaneous, uh, close-in-time events that compound the dangers that we're experiencing from the first disaster when the next disaster hits. Mm. One of the powerful takeaways from the pandemic for me that you've spoken about and, and clearly a warning for, for climate change is that when states are unable or unwilling to respond to crises, it creates uh, space for bad actors to fill. Can you talk about how you've seen effectively the Mexican and Italian mafia expand their influence through the pandemic and potentially what that means through catastrophic climate events as well? Yes, uh, we've seen this in the pandemic. So when governments are unable to respond to the needs of their people, uh, if they can't get the masks, if they can't get them hand sanitizers, if there's shortages on the shelves or there's no housing or uh, people have food or water insecurity, they will turn to others for help and uh, corrupt uh, individuals uh, and those that have um, bad intentions, be it to um, conduct uh, criminal work, terrorism, will take advantage of that. And that's, they will exploit the situation, both to increase their territory and their influence, as well as to uh, recruit new members. And we've seen this um, over and over again, but it was on full display during uh, the pandemic. We saw um, an Italian mayor come out um, and talk about the mafia and how the mafia was using this moment to expand its operations in, uh, in Italy. We saw in Mexico the cartels, um, particularly um, uh, uh, El Chapo, his daughters, uh, prepared boxes of supplies with hand sanitizer, paper towels, other things that you need during the pandemic. They stamped the picture of their father on the box and they handed that out to the population. Uh, so again, uh, with the message that the uh, cartels will take care of you, your government cannot. Uh, similarly, we saw ISIS... Boko Haram claim territories and recruit members based on the ineffective response to the pandemic and actively solicit new members as a result of these disasters. 
We saw the same thing in Pakistan during very severe floodings in 2011. The Taliban moved in when the Pakistani government didn't have a sufficient response. And how bad this can get is uh, we can look to what happened in 1970. Pakistan had East and West Pakistan. At that time, Bangladesh was not a nation yet, but uh, Cyclone Bola came through, the deadliest cyclone ever experienced in the world. A half a million people died, mostly in areas uh, that are now Bangladesh. Not long after that, there was deep concern about the Pakistani government's response to this. Bangladesh civil war ensued and a new nation was born. So these events can seriously undermine authority, and that can be very destabilizing in terms of the global picture uh, as to our understanding of who our allies are, what their capabilities are, and our understanding of what the strategic mix will be going forward. So that's why it's so important that we consider the capabilities of governments to respond as well as possible scenarios if they are unable to respond. It's fascinating. Um, Last question. Can you give us a quick preview of your next book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19? Yes, it is looking at what we've experienced here with the pandemic and how we can make better choices. But it starts with this fundamental fact that so hampers our ability with in particular climate change. That is that the future can no longer be solely guided by our past. We tend to judge all of these events by what we've experienced in the past. But the past is no longer a safe indicator given that for the foreseeable future, we will experience more extremes. So that means we need to make significant changes in how we make our decisions. And then when you layer on catastrophic risk of a pandemic, you can look at some of the things that we've talked about here. Uh, Supply chains uh, really need to deeply consider uh, how do you fatten those? How do you make those stronger? Uh, Your surge force for responding to multiple events happening at once. And then we need to think seriously about shifting the paradigm from paying for disasters after the fact to providing people help before the bad event so that they can better prepare themselves and better withstand. And that has to do a lot with improving the delivery of insurance and aid uh, to people so that they don't have to sell their cow. They don't have to pull their kid out of school because they've just lost their livelihood. They don't have to migrate because they've lost their home. Uh, And that means we've got to figure out ways to help them withstand uh, what's ahead. Uh, And then the last is that we need to marry the considerations of resilience and mitigation. These two fields have grown up separately. They don't really talk to each other as much as they should. And we're at risk of making choices with regard to mitigation that may not be so wise in terms of resilience and 
similarly making choices about resilience that aren't so wise in terms of mitigation. So we need to marry these two concepts in a meaningful way to make sure that we're getting the greatest bang for a buck, whatever choices we're making going forward. So it's been fascinating to discuss what the climate policy agenda holds under the new Biden administration and why it's so important for the U.S. to rebuild its leadership position in climate security again. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and thoughts. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Alice Hill, Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Alice. Thank you. What a pleasure. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell.com at man.com.